This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you can. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. Uh, We're going to be speaking to an expert and covering a lot of stocks that are are of particular interest to the Equity Mates community. Absolutely. This week is all about the ASX Investor Day. In case you missed the live sessions held uh, around parts of the country over the past month, we've partnered with the ASX to bring you some of the best sessions and experts from the conference. And uh, today's theme is all about investing in global markets and disruption. And we are joined by the Chief Investment Officer of Loftus Peak, Alex Polak. Alex, welcome. Hello. Hey. Alex has 25 years experience specializing in investing in disruptive business models and is now director of Loftus Peak and uh, heads up one of the best performing teams in disruptive investment in Australia. So um, we're going to go through a bit about uh, Alex's investment framework and then really pick his brains on a number of stocks that are on his watch list or in his portfolio, which is pretty exciting. So uh, let's get stuck in. Yeah. Now, before we do, Alex, we do always like to start with the same question, uh, and that is to hear the story of your first investment. We generally find there's a good story or lesson (laughs) that comes out of it. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? So my first property investment or my first stock market investment? Whatever the first one was. Well, the first one was... uh, rental property, which I bought in conjunction with my brother. Uh, and we made a bit of money out of it, actually. Um, and, but it was property and it was my very first one. We bought it for, I don't know, 50 or 60 grand. And I think we sold Jeez. it for 100. No, that's right. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, Start, how, starting that's how old I am. <laughs> starting your investment journey with property is something that uh, people our age would love to be able to do, but it's it's hard these days. Unbelievable. Well, let's get stuck into what you're doing at, at Loftus, Alex, and, and we'll start with your investment framework. 
How do you define firstly disruption when you're looking for investment opportunities? So disruption is when everything that was you know, went before is swept away. So a, a really simple example of this is um, thinking about, you know, all the companies that used to make camera bodies and, and cameras uh, 30 years ago or tape decks. What happened to all those cameras and camera bodies and tape deck, you know, machines? And the answer was they were all, as it were, virtualized and stuck into software apart from the camera and the actual recording microphone itself, but that, that's a tiny component of the whole thing. They have, all the software was virtualized and inserted into your, you know, your iPhone, your, your phone generally. Um, innovation is, is something that, you know, we, we draw a line between innovation and disruption. Innovation is what car companies did and what most companies do for the last 100 years. They started off with a pretty, you know, clunky old car and they put in power brakes and power steering, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but but they're always basically run on oil, et, et cetera. Um, what's happening now is that the energy cycle is being changed. It's one of our themes. And, and, and what's happening to cars is that cars, all of the cars that went before, which were just innovations, are being swept away under this new car architecture, which is battery. And that's disruption. So it, disruption sweeps everything before it. Uh, away, so to speak, and changes. So, like I said, camera batteries, you know, internal combustion engines. That's that's. So we invest in those companies. So you mentioned that the changing energy cycle is one of your themes. What are some of the other big disruption themes you're following at the moment? So we have a few, and we have since the very beginning of this company seven years ago, we referred to energy not as a fuel to be burned, but as a technology to be. Uh, to be manipulated, if you know what I mean, right? So for, for, you know, thousands of years, humans have burnt fuel, wood, et cetera, et cetera, and generated heat or petrol or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, cooking implements, et cetera, cooking fires. Um, but energy doesn't have to be burnt as a fuel. Energy can be harvested from the sun or the wind, and it's, as it were, infinite on that basis. Uh, and so it's not as it's not a, you don't burn it up and you and, and use it and, and have to go and find some more. You simply uh, use the technology to transform it from one source to another. That's energy as a technology, not a fuel. So then, what is the framework and process that you take to find and analyze companies? You know, you obviously identify uh, what these major, I guess. Uh, areas of disruption are, how do you then find companies within that? So energy as a fuel is, is uh, that, that's a thematic, right? So we've got five or six major thematics. Uh, the human gene and the genome is another thematic. Uh, another thematic is networks because networks have their own particular economics uh, and networks is what drives things like Amazon and eBay, et cetera. Uh, data, data is very, very important because we, we live in a world in which the, the transmission of data, the, the um, manipulation of data at great speed is increasingly something that we even not, we don't, we don't even see it, it's so invisible. For example, when you do a Google search, sorry, let me start again. There are 67,000 Google searches a second. Wow. wow. <laughs> 67, there are not enough people in the world to, to answer 67,000 Google searches per second. You, to do that, you need machine learning. You need particular kinds of uh, systems and data transmission systems uh, in order to answer those questions, uh, um, you know, in a 
whatever Google does, 0.014 of a second. Uh, you know, every time you get a, an email and it says down the bottom, yes, no, sure, it looks like a good idea, that's a piece of machine learning that's been sort of inserted in there. For, you don't even notice it. Every time you hop into an Uber and it recalculates a route from here to there because you change something, that's all machine learning. When it sits there and says, oh, there's a traffic jam over there, you should go this way, that's machine learning. Machine, machine learning is... Uh, you know, everywhere around us, like the air itself right now, we just, and we don't even see it, right? But it, but it's there and it qu- requires very significant and specific tools to make it work. So data is, a, data is another one. China is another thematic. By, by dint of the fact that China is um, geopolitically significant and very large and at a point of maximum change, that's a thematic. Um, so those are the kind of and energy we mentioned before. Those are the sorts of. So you asked me how do we, you Fine know, pick the companies, right? Yeah. So first of all, we start with these thematics. So so we put the companies, you know, in those various boxes. Thematics might be Apple, might be Google, might be Mercado Libra, might be Alibaba, might be Nvidia, might be Qualcomm, and then we say, are they disruptive? Yes. So are these companies using new tools? to execute business better. And the way we know that they execute business better is they grow faster and they become worth more quicker. So the stock price goes up. So that's the kind of soup to nuts idea about what it is that we do and a tiny bit of how we do it. But obviously there's more detail behind that. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. So in these these periods of big disruption, you have a lot of legacy companies that lose out, some that are able to disrupt themselves and adapt. And then amongst all the new companies that come on, uh, you have some massive winners and you have a lot that have promise but don't, don't pan out. And for beginner investors, it looks like a very uncertain period, very volatile period. And if you don't play it right, it can be quite a tough period for your portfolio. For beginner investors that hear you talking about some of these themes, agree that these themes are taking over the world. I mean, it's tough to disagree with that these days. How should beginner investors be thinking about investing in these themes? Well, you know, everything we do is with a background of thinking about what the risks are involved in that, right? So, and everything we do goes up onto a standardised multi-year discounted cash flow model. So, uh, and, you know, unless you kind of have those tools, I mean, you know, people sometimes ask me for uh, recommendations and I give them a recommendation, but I, I, but I always say, now, this is just a recommendation today. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow it could change and then in six months' time it might change again. So you're asking me for a point in time and I, I'm happy to give any recommendation, so to speak, or what I think is a good stock for a point in time. People then kind of forget that, you know, that advice is temp- is temporal, right? It's not good for all time. It's in a time and place. And so, what's so? For example, we held Tesla right uh, all the way up from, um, you know, in in the in the new money from sort of you know forty dollars to six hundred dollars or five hundred dollars. We held it all the way long. We held it in a two percent position because it was part of it was a risk risky investment. And what we said was. At a 2% position, and, and we were constrained by our mandate to hold no more than 2% of it, it, it could go broke because there were chances there. Well, this was in 2017. Or it could go up 10 times its value. As it happens, it went up 10 times its value and it didn't go broke and it went through our price target and then we sold it. And I, I can 
you know, explain to you the reasons why we sold it, why we held it in the first place, why we sold it and why we held it in the first place. Um, but uh, I'm happy to do that. Mm. So um, all pieces of information about stock tips are kind of temporal in nature, right? They come and go. So, you know, let's take one of the thematics as an example, energy. Um, how do you know you know, which company to back in a, a space where there's so many disruptors coming into the market? So a lot of it is to do with cash flow, right? Yeah, right. A lot of it is to do with cash flow. So when I say that everything goes up on a standardised multi-year DCF model, it means that we look at the, the cash that they generate, their operating cash flow, less the amount of capex that they require to build the business out. Yeah. And we simply do a DCF on that. This is not a new tool. This is a time-honoured tool. Goes, you know, hundred years of finance behind this. It's not new. And um, if it stacks up, in other words, if it's got sufficient cash flow and doesn't have too much capex, such that on the multi-year DCF the valuation comes in above the stock price, we will consider it. But but even if it did that right. We'd consider it, but if it had bad management, we'd knock it out or cut it down to position. You know, so management comes into it. But in the essence of how we, what we buy, is really tied into the free cash flow and the DCF of that free cash flow. Is Elon Musk a good manager? <laughs> you know, he's a tremendous manager, actually, uh, to have got that company off the ground. And the scope of what he knows, I mean, I, I sort of think of him as another Steve Jobs, frankly. He's, he's that clever and he's that much of a visionary. Um, and, 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 I th- and, you know, that's kind of reflected, more than reflected actually in the stock price today. He's a deeply talented uh, man and an incredibly good manager, but he's a human like everybody else and he makes dumb mistakes. So, <laughs> you know, it is what it is, right? Yeah. And he should probably not uh, host TV shows as well. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Stick to your knitting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Alex, if you think about disruption, uh, I guess in our, like Bryce and my lifetime from the late 90s onwards, you really only think about America. You think about Silicon Valley and you think about the amazing companies that have come out of there. I guess what we're seeing now is emergent tech companies and disruptors around the world. You know, one of the companies we're going to talk about today is Mercado Libre. In terms of geographically, what are some of the areas that are exciting you at the moment uh, in terms of like leading disruption in some of those themes you're talking about? Um, The disruption thing is going on globally, to be frank. And you mentioned Mercado Libre, which is really a combination of Amazon and PayPal and maybe even a little Ant Financial in uh, Latin America. Tremendous company. I just looked over the results in the last 24 hours from a few days ago, really generating 100% growth on previous corresponding period on a quarterly basis. You, you know, just every part of the numbers were just, you know, really fantastic. But 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 the thing that we – it's a globalising world, right? We're not – we don't really play the Australian market much. And so there are disruptive companies all over the world. We buy a lot of them through US exchanges, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, we, we own uh, Alibaba and Tencent uh, and we buy them on the Hong Kong exchange, but we own them for their position in China. We own Mercado Libra as a, as a company which is globalising in Latin America. Uh, and going back to Alibaba, it's also very active in the rest of, you know, parts of Asia. Um, not all of it, but parts of Asia. And also in India. So we look for companies that have got a global footprint, even though they might be listed on the US. And we, you know, obviously we own Alphabet, Google. You know, it's a US listed company, but it's got a huge business, obviously, um, around the world, Australia, Europe, 
you know, the UK, et cetera, et cetera. So we look for businesses that are that have what you call runway, right? Plenty of room to, you know, expand their business model into new markets. Mm. So before we uh, take a bit of a deep dive on some of the stocks, uh, Alex, we'll take a short break to hear from our sponsors. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So Alex, at the uh, Investor Day, you spoke about Roku. So we may as well start there and then uh, we'll get some insight into a number of other companies that are on, on your watch list or in your portfolio. So... Let's start with Roku. What is Roku and uh, what is the thesis? Why is it a disruptor? Uh, Roku is a television streaming company. And it, we, we, I, I trotted it out at the ASX because it's an example of a disruptive company that's really most people haven't heard of, but it is a deeply disruptive company. It's a streaming company. Most people, when they turn on their televisions, it comes up as 279 or 10 or, or in the US, whatever the linear channels are in the US. Roku is a company that provides the operating system for television so that when you turn on your television, it doesn't come up as 279 or 10. It comes up with a bunch of apps. So we, we say it's app first, not channel first. Those apps have channels behind them, but they're not necessarily the channels that are in your local area. So when you open up the app, the Roku operating system on your television, and by the way, 40% of smart televisions in the US have come with Roku embedded in them. When your television, your Roku television switches on, it it switches on, it says Disney Plus, you know, Netflix, uh, you know, Peacock Networks, etc., etc., and also a whole bunch of free channels. And those free channels are channels that what they say Roku surfaces. They find them for you because they might not be in your area. They might, there'll be areas of, you know, there'll be things on which you're specially interested. They find that channel for you. They bring it to you in your Roku television because they know who you are and they and they insert advertisements in that stream, right? So, the, so they give some of that money or a large part of that money back to the content publisher. Let's say it's a country and Western music channel and, the, and some of that money they keep themselves. You get to watch the country and Western music channel with advertisements but for free and they have tens of thousands of channels like that uh, which are – 
you know, available and they insert the advertisements and their biz- that's their business model. They are the operating system for smart televisions. It's a, you say it quickly and it doesn't sort of mean much, but, you know, how your Facebook feed is a different set of ads to somebody else's Facebook feed. Some Two, two people can have a Roku television in two different rooms in the same house. The feed will be – the advertisements will be different. That's what they do. So – is the long-term opportunity then for Roku to be the platform and incentivize a whole bunch of new free digital channels to be created on Roku and then they serve ads on that? Is that the model that they're chasing? That is, you have, you have, uh, you, you've obviously a, a very quick study here because <laughs> no, I, I don't think I explained it, well. it that well. <laughs> That's exactly what they do. The, the, they, th- they thrive on streaming diversity. The more, the merrier. So when Roku, when we first invested it, people said, why would people have Roku? They'd have Netflix. No, 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 no. Netflix sits on the Roku app screen as an application. And the more streaming channels that exist, Disney+, Plus, Peacock, iView, you name it. Think about ABC iView, right? ABC iView doesn't have a global presence to go and programmatically put advertisements into its feed in Australia, right? And even if it did, it would never compete against someone that was doing it programmatically for tens of thousands of channels across geographies all over the world. No economies of scale in the iView version of that. Roku has those economies of scale. So Roku then wants to be on every smart TV. Currently they're on 40%, but if they can get you know, massive scale and be the platform. That's the game for them. A hundred percent. So they're, they're actually in 50 million television households in the US today. Are there any competitors that are trying to do something similar? Surely or- Apple TV. Did, well, <laughs> Apple TV doesn't insert advertisements. Yeah, because I'm just thinking I have what Roku is delivering through Apple TV. Yes, but you I- do. But but it's not an ad. Channels, distant channels or chan- any other channels around the world are not really, Apple's not really... Uh, paying them mm. to to be on the Apple television platform, right? So because Apple doesn't put advertisements in, Apple's not an advertising company, mm. right? Like if, if we wanted to make Equity Mates TV one day, we would do it for Apple and would get nothing. Yeah. But we could make a business case if Roku Correct. paid us. So yeah. that's exactly right. If you wanted to make Equity Mates TV and, and there was somebody in Roku that was interested in investing in the Australian market, they would... Uh, they would surface your television channel to that person in the US and they would insert advertisements into the feed, into the person in the US watching your channel and you'd get a little bit of that revenue, right? So you'd be incentivised to actually be on the Roku platform because they gave you revenue. Apple has no such arrangement. So there are, I mean, YouTube is a competitor in its own right as well, but it's sort of a different thing. You know, it's through a stick, it's a Chromecast, it's not quite the same thing, right? It's interesting. I'd I'd never heard of it. Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't looked at it much, to be honest. I always just thought it was an aggregator of streaming services. It is. is It's exactly what it is, but with advertising in the back of it. Not, not. It's, it's what they call AVOD, advertising video on demand, not SVOD, subscriber video. You know what would be the killer app for Roku is if it had like a global search, because that's the thing that kills me. It's like I know I've got so many subscription services. I know that there's stuff I want to watch, but you have to go into each individual app and find stuff. If there was like a global search where they could index what's in all of the subscription services, and you could do a global search, that would be great. Apple TV does that. Do they? Yeah, there you can go. go home screen of Apple TV. <laughs> I obviously love Apple TV. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you, and yeah. you'll search and it'll say, this is in Binge or this oh, is in good. Netflix. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Google yeah. lets you down a lot on that. Does it? Yeah. 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 
Interesting. Well, uh, that is Roku. What what would be the we always like to hear the bear case for some of these things. What would be the bear case for Roku that would make you change your mind on this? The bear case, for, <clears throat> there are competitors. Amazon is a competitor. We, 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 you mentioned Apple. Amazon is a genuine competitor through its Fire TV because the Fire TV is an operating system for television itself. But Amazon's kind of, you know, Roku has, is, is kind of pure insofar as they will put in the inventory that's the highest priced inventory that monetizes your content. Whereas Amazon's got a kind of slightly different agenda in there, right? Amazon's agenda is to sell more Amazon stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So they are a competitor, but actually Roku is beating them. I don't really have much of a bear case for Roku. I think it's- <laughs> That's fine. I've got a bear case for Tesla if you want. I mean, it, <laughs> well, let's- um, You know, there are, you know, YouTube, is uh, you know you never rule out Google you never rule out any of the the big players that are big in operating systems on phones for their ability to migrate that operating system to another place for example Google which is search on your laptop you know gave the operating system for phones to phone companies around the world right by the way that's what Roku does too to television makers so Google could set up a rival operating system and and give it away in the same way that Roku does. They'd be starting from square from square one on that. But Google's a company with a big, big balance sheet; they probably wouldn't care. Mm. But the, then the question is: Is it worth you know the effort, so to speak? So um, you've given us a number of other companies here that would love to um, similarly unpack. Given we're talking uh, streaming and TV, it makes sense that we go to Netflix. Um, so most people will be familiar with Netflix, so you don't have to really describe what it does, but I guess what's the thesis for Netflix? Uh, Netflix is, um, Netflix is a, it's, it's basically running on 200 million subscribers right now globally, but the, the TAM, what we call the TAM, because this is one of the things that always we consider target addressable market. When, whenever we invest in a company or a sector is how big is the TAM? Target addressable market is at least 600 to a billion, 1.5 billion, depending how you, because some people can get it on a on a broadband mobile phone, some people get it on a television, some people get it on the laptop. So and and you know so so it's a much larger target addressable market than where it's at right now at 200, 200 million households. But the the thing that people and we we were across this actually three years ago. We did the numbers and did the numbers and did the numbers, and finally we looked at each other and said. On this trajectory, this company will, will be able to return capital to shareholders in two, two to three years' time. And indeed, this quarter, this, they've just announced a $5 billion buyback of stock. So they're now buying back. They have, no, they have no further need for capital. Not only do they have no need for capital, they have too much capital, so they're going to give some back to their shareholders. I don't think people kind of quite completely understand how, uh, you know, what a great position this company's in. It's generating so much free cash flow that it will buy back its own shares. Netflix has a, a lot of debt on its balance sheet, though. Do you, how do you think as a shareholder about them paying off that debt or buying back shares? Well, it's uh, – well, two things. It doesn't – it's got twenty odd billion dollars worth of debt, but it's capped at uh, you know two hundred billion, or I think it's around about two hundred billion dollars. Interest rates are very low, um, and when we say they are buying back their own shares, that's after servicing the debt, yeah. right? So if they so what they're saying to you is we can service our debt and buy back five billion dollars worth of shares, you know. So what that says to you is, and they'll retire a bit of debt in there as well, I'm sure, but they're in the situation now where they're, they're they they you know, an optimised capital structure has a bit of debt in it because debt is cheap, right? So 
it's a better thing, I think, to buy back some shares, which is what they're doing, and then do the debt, you know, uh, piece by piece. You don't want to just kind of wipe it all off together because it's good to have a little bit of debt, a little bit of debt. Mm. $20 billion worth. Yeah. Well, it's on a, on a market cap of 200 yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's actually lowly debt, right? <laughs> So there's plenty of other streaming services out there and opportunities to invest in them. Why is Netflix the the winner takes all in this or why is it the one that you're backing in? Oh, oh I think there'll be other winners as well than Netflix. Again, the target addressable market for Netflix isn't just um, – people won't only have one streaming service. But, you know, Disney will be a one. Uh, I suspect HBO, you know, Sopranos, Sex and the City, that's what, they'll, they'll be another one. People will have two or three or four of these streaming services They'll and they'll all be, you know, there or thereabouts the same. Disney's already $100 million. Yeah, They'll be there or thereabouts. Um, so it do, it's not necessary for everyone else to fail in order for Netflix to succeed. People will spend $20, $40, $60, $80 a month on their streaming services. That will, you know, over time kick out the, the cable TV bundle, what we have here in Australia, which is Foxtel, which, you know, is really un, in a lot of trouble as a result of Netflix, for example. Um, and they kick out the, the, the cable platforms and uh, take the streaming platforms, of which Netflix will be one, and as I say, Disney will be another, HBO will be a third. There'll probably be a couple of others as well, right? And you'll just mix and match. And- Does Roku then provide the one-stop shop for aggregating streaming services? <laughs> <laughs> and that is the point, right? So so the Apple TV that you mentioned before, and, and it's a great thing, right? Is it, but, it's a, but it's not ad-supported, right? It won't surface for you uh, channels that it doesn't, it, it, it's, it surfaces a particular kind of, you know, like Netflix and, and, um, and YouTube and stuff like that. Um, but if you have, you know, if you want to catch your a basketball channel in, you know, Washington or the college basketball channel in Washington, it won't surface that for you. Or if it will, it won't be easy. Whereas uh, Roku will do that. So, Alex, you're in good company with this uh, Netflix thesis. We had Hamish Douglas on the podcast earlier this year, and he uh, is super bullish on Netflix, thinks it will be a trillion-dollar company. Um, so, you know, great company. Um, but we do want to hear the, the bear case. So what what um, what could go wrong here? What's the bear case for Netflix? Oh, the bear case for Netflix is that um – what is the bear case for Netflix? <laughs> Very bullish. Very bullish, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the bear case for Netflix would simply be around valuation, right? I mean, there's no doubt that this model is going to be the model of how people watch television in the next 10 years. We already know that that's obvious. The bear case is that it's simply overvalued and that Disney over time develops better content than Netflix does and Peacock does and HBO does and Netflix therefore loses market share and the free cash flows is not, is not as large, et cetera. So th- that's, th- that's a very specific question around the pricing, right? So it's, it's not like it won't be there, but it, it's conceivable that they make a bunch of bad programming decisions and, um, you know, and, and other competitors become more important than it mm. and it loses value and goes down. Mm. That's the big case. So let's uh, continue on this track. Um, Qualcomm, another stock uh, that is within your investing universe. Why? Uh, what is Qualcomm for those that haven't heard of it and why is it disruptive? Qualcomm, if you've owned a 2G, 3G, 4G and now a 5G phone, it's more than likely, more than probably 80% likely that it's got a Qualcomm series of modems, baseband chips in it, the things that connect to the towers, etc. Qualcomm is the very 
heart of the communication that takes place on a mobile phone back to a cell tower. And um, it's a, you know, it more or less has that market to itself. And what it's doing, the reason that we like it so much, is it's expanding its, as it were, target addressable market. There's those words again. So it's not just about the baseband. It's about a whole lot of the other electronics within the 5G uh, framework, uh, which will make it even more important. For example, there's a big IoT, what they call an Internet of Things business. Uh, an IoT business is just, um, you know, if you like, the, we own a company called John Deere, which is a tractor, you know, farm machinery company. We own it because uh, John Deere has been putting sensors on the tractors to assess mo- moisture content in soil, you know chemical composition of soil, topography, so you don't, you know, run the thing over another stump and break an axle, <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. Well, all of the um, uh, the sensors essentially use a Qualcomm modem in the end to, to send their signal back to the, to the um, relevant place in the cloud or factory floor or you. Uh, and Qualcomm is that it's it's the very it's the glue that holds all of that mobile communications together. Mm. Fantastic company, you know it's it's more than doubled since we've owned it, and it's a very it's it's a very important company in the twenty first century. Mm. I mean, we're living through a global uh, semiconductor shortage at the moment. You know, the the car makers are struggling with it. Um, a lot of companies are struggling with it, and it's a good time to be in the chip business. Everything you create is out the door and straight into a product. Um, but the semiconductor business is also known as quite cyclical. How do you think about stocks like uh, Qualcomm and and I guess, Matt, do you Matt, do you like trade in and out as they move through the cycle or are you, they long-term holders? Um, we, we buy and sell things when they hit the top of our valuation range, we sell them and when they fall through the valuation range on the bottom, we rebuy them. And, and in that way, we recycle capital uh, quite not not a lot. Our portfolio turnover is about thirty five percent per year, meaning that thirty five percent of the stocks go through. That doesn't mean we change the portfolio. It just means that you know we might have held a company at five percent, and then we hold it at two, and then we hold it at nine, and that that all comes into the overall calculation. But but, but to answer your question, the chip business, so to speak, is like the silicon content, for example, in cars used to be fifty, a hundred dollars, one hundred and fifty dollars. The silicon content in cars over the next five years is going to go up to $3,000, right? There's a global chip shortage because globally all businesses, we talked about John Deere, are going to use more silicon to do more things. Think about this, right? You used to, if you had a power brake circuit in your car, that was one circuit that went through a wiring harness to a central controller for that. And then the stereo went through another one. Then the, uh, you know, indicators went through another series of electrical circuits, et cetera. Then the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Until you had thousands of wires running around the car, right? Well, obviously, you know, if you were to do the same thing in a mobile phone, it would be at the size of this desk, right? <laughs> so obviously microelectronics has revolutionised that and that's silicon, that's what silicon's all about. And so there's an increased content of silicon in not everything, obviously, but in many, many things, you know, internet fridges and all that sort of stuff. So that's the kind of, you know, showy end of the thing of what's what's happening. But it's true to say that there is a very significant draw of silicon in everything that we do 
now. And so it's notoriously cyclical, but it's cyclical right now around a growth line. So, and that's what we're seeing right now. And that's why you've seen, you know, uh, you know, $100 billion CapEx from TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Company, over the next three years. This is unheard of, right? It's $100 billion over, I think, four years. And Intel itself is scrambling to spend, you know, $50, $60 billion uh, in CapEx to get ahead of this thing right now. Mm. So TSMC with the foundry model was um, pretty... Uh, I guess, revolutionary for the chip business. Mm. And there's been uh, a number of great businesses that have benefited from that. AMD, NVIDIA, I assume Qualcomm um, as well. How do you think about Qualcomm in relation to its competitors? You said it's it's got a really strong position in that 4G, 5G chips, um, but are they do they have like a really defensible moat or are NVIDIA and AMD going to come and uh, take their market share? No, no. Th- what... Qualcomm does in that. There are competitors to Qualcomm, but they're much smaller. No, no. This is about 4G and 5G baseband capability. It's not in. It's not in AMD's or, for that matter, even Xilinx's uh, solution set. Right. It's a completely different thing. In fact, uh, <laughs> Intel. You know, for the last five years, up until a year ago, laboured to create a 5G modem for Apple and famously said, I'm sorry, we can't do it, <laughs> literally, and sold that business to Apple. We, and, and it's that business that Apple is, when they say sold it, I suspect what really happened is that Apple just took all the engineers and, and, <laughs> the, and the IP and the, you know, work, the work in progress and, you know, they never disclosed a price. But, but the important part of it is it's that hard, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Intel couldn't do it. Intel... You know, it's not able to do a seven nanometer chip as well, right? So this is all, you know, highly relevant stuff. But it, it's so it's not in AMD's portfolio, yeah. uh, and neither Xilinx's or anyone else's like that. There are competitors, MediaTek, uh, but um, they're much smaller. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of Apple, I, I, we should move towards it. But before, as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. We do. We'll just take a quick break. So, Alex, uh, we may as well kick off with Apple. You know, obviously a very disruptive company, has been for a while. What What is the thesis that's keeping you in this one? If you look at the uh, Apple numbers over the last five years, in fact, if you look at the Microsoft numbers over, over the last five years, but particularly Apple, the services revenue ha- yeah. and, and earnings have been literally just 
exploding. So they're now at that they were sixteen percent of total revenue. I think four or five years ago, they're now at 23, 24% of total revenue. And by the way, the product side of the business, what you know as iPhones and Macs and iPads and all that stuff, that's still growing. So it's not like that's standing still. So it, it the product side is growing, but the services side is growing too. So. Apple Pay is a service on an Apple phone, right? Apple TV is a service for watching. So what Apple is doing is it's created this fantastic series of products on which, which, which is its infrastructure, what they call its ecosystem, on which it's able to graft new services like music and television and Apple Pay. And it's a trivial thing, right? I don't think there is a history, in the history of the world, there's ever been a company that was able to communicate with its users, with 1.5 billion users a day. And that's what Apple can effectively do. Facebook can do it as well. But if you go back 30 years ago, the only companies, the biggest companies in the world that were connected with companies like Comcast in the United States with 30 million connected users. This is one and a half billion connected users. Sure, one and a half billion people might have bought a Coke every day, but Coke didn't know who they were and, you know, didn't get a feed, get, didn't get feedback about whether the Coke came out of the machine and too warm or et cetera. So Apple's got 1.5 billion people approximately on an, on an operating system of its, whether it's the, whether it's iOS, whether it's um, the operating system, Mavericks or one of the yeah. things, et cetera, desktop. Um, and, and so adding in a music streaming service or adding in Apple Pay, which is of, you know, just everywhere right now because of COVID, is a trivial thing. And they're all almost, uh, almost immediately Fortune 500 companies and, and they spin them out of their existing ecosystem. Um, and I increasingly think health is going to be a very uh, important thing for Apple as well down the track. Yeah, the wearables. The wearables. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of competition in that space at the moment, isn't there? Google bought or Alphabet bought Fitbit or one of them? Uh, and Alphabet then, bought Fitbit, yeah, I think that's yeah. right. And there's others besides. Yeah. So going back to Apple though, uh, this is, you know, you're really interested in disruption and Apple for me is a really interesting company where they were obviously so disruptive and then so innovative and they've built an unbelievable ecosystem. I briefly strayed to the Android ecosystem and then came straight back. Rookie. <laughs> um, and there's no denying that it's best in class and they've now established that and, you know, their, their recent quarterly results where, you know, everything, iPad sales were up 70% and all of that. Mm, unbelievable. But, mm. but all that aside, you know, their hardware business is, is not as quick, fast growing as their services business. And so now it's like monetizing all these additional things in their service business. It doesn't feel like they're on the forefront of disruption anymore. It feels like they've built this ecosystem and they're finding different products and services in that ecosystem to really generate revenue. I think that's 100% accurate, Alec. You know, they have done a disruption trick, but it's a many-layered thing and it's got a few more years to run. But that, this is not the most disruptive company necessarily anymore, I don't think. I think, the car, you know, Tesla is that company now. So then my question becomes, um, how do you think about vulnerability to the next disruption? Like this company is now the, you know, the, the Walmart or the, you know, the Ford of its day where it's like it is the big industrial company that everyone uses and has massive market share. Uh, when do you, how do you like assess their vulnerability to the next technological innovation? Um, that's a really good question. And I don't know that I have a ready answer for 
how that works. I mean, how they would be disrupted. I have a model for how Tesla would be disrupted. Okay. <laughs> uh, I can answer that question. If you like. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we talked about Tesla briefly before. We don't hold it anymore. We, we did hold it. We, we made great money out of it. We don't hold it anymore because they, Tesla, to get to the valuation you have to get to right now, you really have to kind of assume that some of the other car companies don't make a comeback. Mm. And VW has now categorically said, and it's all it's in all its materials, and remember VW is the largest car maker in the world, mm. VW has categorically said that they are going fully electric and they are the scale producer in the world, right? They own Skoda, Seat, uh, Audi, Porsche. Porsche yeah. um, VW. <laughs> and I think they own Bentley. Lee or is it Rolls-Royce? I don't know. They are the scale producer, right? So they now understand what it is they have to do and they are – they're not going to disrupt Tesla's business model but they're going to compete in a – as a formerly disrupted company, they're going to compete in disruption itself. I suspect that's a part of the answer somewhere in Apple as well. You know, Android was that competition – for Apple itself, but it's a different product, as you know. It's kind of it's a it's a different Android is a different product, so it's not obvious to me to see you know the end of as it were the mobile phone on the one hand, and then be the switch from Apple to a different brand. I mean, the Chinese had a really good go at it through uh, Honor and uh, Huawei and Xiaomi and a couple of others. But it's not obvious to me that that will actually ultimately challenge Apple. Mm, yeah. And if someone does challenge Apple, they have $200 billion on their balance sheet that they can try and buy them with. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, you know, the, the, I mean, the only one of the bad things about these companies is that they they are behemoths right now. And that is, that, that is a competition stifler. And they, you know, governments around the world, and I think, and the companies themselves have to be careful that they don't engage in anti-competitive conduct. Of course they do. Uh, I'm not calling anybody out here particularly. I'm just saying that there is a bit of anti-competitive contact going on generally. And that's a bad thing, right, for competition to be stifled. So it may be that governments have to break them up. I like this, you know, Tesla v Volkswagen because, you know, disruption isn't only about new companies coming onto the scene. You think about Disney and the disruption they've done for themselves with the streaming. You think about Home Depot. Uh, you think about Walmart. You think about all these companies that have had to essentially disrupt themselves to keep abreast of competition or keep up with competition. So how do you think about Volkswagen as an investment opportunity versus Tesla? Oh, so... Volkswagen definitely stacks up better than Tesla right now. Um, that, that's not to say that we own it at this moment. Uh, I, I'm not sure that we but, – but it's we are looking at it very, very closely. You mentioned as well Disney disrupting itself. That's exactly what it did. I, I wanted to mention it myself. Disney had 75 years of contractual mechanisms by which it's distributed its programs all around the world. They've ripped all those up and they're, they're basically doing a Netflix competitor. Mm. So, and, and that's fantastic, right, because it keeps Netflix honest and, and Disney has disrupted itself and moved to the streaming model just as VW is, has disrupted itself and said no more petrol, petrol or diesel engine cars going forward. And I think we are going – one of the big things that we're going to see is 
the disrupted companies starting to come back into the market. You know, years ago, uh, there was a television commercial about Kod- from Kodak, which was the Kodak moment, right? And, and the Kodak moment was take a picture of, of a beautiful thing that happened, right? That was their television commercial to sell Kodak film. Kodak had a different kind of Kodak moment. Yeah. <laughs> they invented the digital camera and then didn't act on it. And their Kodak moment was failing to, you know, move into digital and away from film. There's a lot of companies like VW and Disney that have had, as it were, Kodak moments in the last few years. And they're determined in that Kodak moment not to wind up like Kodak. That They're determined to remake themselves as proper competitors in the 21st century. And I applaud that. I think there's going to be a lot of value to be had out of those companies. Uh, and we're very interested in them. Mm. There's a lot of businesses these days having Kodak moments, not in the technology space as well. You know, I think of like Amaya and how they weren't able to innovate and they just are getting destroyed these days. Amaya who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we um, looked down 90% since they relisted in 09. Yeah. It's been a terrible, um, it's bad, right? I mean, I, I don't, I, I genuinely feel for, you know, the Maya brand and the people the people in particular and all the suppliers and the people who, you know, for whom Maya was their business life. But I, I don't know what to do about it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So the last company we've got uh, on this disruption list is one that I'm really excited to get your thoughts on because it's, it's a fascinating company. Uh, it's an incredible company and I don't think a lot of people in the community will have heard about it. So uh, Mercado Libre, um, can you tell us uh, what it does and then uh, what's the thesis? Thank you, Alec, for that question. Mercado <laughs> Libre, <laughs> it's a great company. It's, it, it is the eBay stroke Amazon of, you know, partic- particularly Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, but Latin America generally. They are massive, just like Amazon is. They're massive into one-day and two-day shipping. They are literally – they just processed the quarter the other day, the quarterly results. They literally grew uh, – top line grew 100% quarter on prior corresponding quarter. Operating income was up more than triple. It went from a loss to a profit. Um, they're just basically Amazon for Latin America. And they've got uh, a payment engine as well, just like PayPal was. Remember, PayPal and eBay were together 10 years ago, five years ago. Um, they've got a payment engine. So, um, you know, it, it's not as wealthy Brazil, Mexico as, you know, uh, the United States where Amazon plays, but it's still a market that absolutely loves you know, a bargain and and a home-delivered bargain. And remember, the simple thing that Amazon did and that Mercado Libre did is, you know, fr- from the dawn of time when people have had something to do, to sell, they've opened a shop. That's, you know, that that is tens of thousands of years of, you know, of stuff that happened. The disruption that Amazon did and Mercado Libre does is it says, no, no, let's not open a shop because that costs 15% of my revenue in, turn, in, in rent to the landlord. Let's open an online shop. Then, then I have an immediate 15% cost advantage relative to someone who's in, like my a shop, and therefore I can give consumers 15% cheaper prices. That's what Amazon does. That's what Mercado Libre does. That's what Alibaba does in China. Um, and so we own these, these e-commerce plays around the world because they're little local, I won't say monopolies because there's plenty of competition for them in them, in those places, but they, they're performing really well. It's now, I think, Latin America's largest single company uh, out of nothing 15 years ago. So, 
It's been, been a great company. It's been a great performer for us. So Alex, it's been uh, a fascinating conversation, plenty of stocks that we've covered, and I'm sure there's plenty more in your fund. Um, for those of you in the Equity Mates community who have enjoyed listening to Alex and would like to find out more about what he's doing or invest in his fund, the good news is the Loftus Peak Global Disruption Fund is available on the ASX. The ticker is LPGD. So uh, you can uh, publicly trade that and get access to what you're doing at Loftus as, Peak. As an ETF. As an ETF, yeah. yes. Um, is there anywhere else that... Uh, our listeners can go to find more information or follow you and are you on socials? Uh, we're on LinkedIn, nice. definitely. Um, and, you know, we, we, we publish a lot of stuff on our web, on our blog, et cetera, et cetera. And we, you know, do the, you know, speak to people, et cetera, and go to ASX conferences. Yeah, the ETF is a fantastic product because there's two kinds of ETFs, active ETFs and passive ETFs. The passive ETFs are just, re- they just replicate the index. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine if you get the right one. We're, a, we're an active ETF, meaning that we manage the positions within the ETF. So, you know, you buy one stock, LPGD ETF on the ASX, you get all of our curation of the companies that we invest in at the relevant rates and the performance that we, as it were, cook up. And that's why the, I, I mean, I think ETFs are really good. I like ours too. Though. <laughs> I, I would say so. that. Yeah. You'd hope so. Jeez, that would be a revelation yeah, if you yeah, didn't right. like yours. Yeah, don't, don't go out. Yeah. Uh, so, Alex, we could talk stocks all day with you, but uh, we do like to end these interviews with the same final three questions. So, we'll get onto those. Um, the first one is Do you have any books that you consider must reads? One book that I consider a must read is Empire of the Summer Moon, which is the story of the. Um, settlers in the United States moving westward and what happened, how they did that and and what happened to particularly the Comanche Indians. And it's, it's a fascinating story about, you know, how countries are built. It's not pretty, as you would expect, um, but it, uh, it's just a, you know, a great um, eye-opener. Mm, nice. nice. Uh, good book. History. I love history. Mm. Mm. So the second question, in 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? The best company, I would have to say, it's got to be a choice between... We're looking for one. You just want one. You can give us a choice. You can give us a choice. (laughs) I, I mean, you know, you'd have to. If it's the best company, I would have to say Tesla. That's not the cheapest company, Yeah. Right. And I would say either Tesla or Apple, and I don't really mind which. Tesla because it completely reimagined and disrupted the car industry, and Apple because it completely re-engineered and remastered not just the phone system. It's that because that's a tiny part of what Apple does. It understood the importance of the phone as a connected point in a network, and so those two companies really are. They will go go down in history, in my view, as the two probably most important companies of the 21st century. Wow. Mm. Until Elon Musk lands on Mars with SpaceX and then SpaceX can join that, <laughs> sure. that as well. <laughs> I mean, you know, the brilliance of Elon Musk, I, I continue to reflect on this, right? Who ever thought about a reusable rocket? Mm. Right? It's, it's, it's actually, in effect, a space elevator. Yeah. Or right. had the ability to execute yeah, that's it. And had the ability yeah, to execute yeah. it. I mean, I take my hat off to him. It's a, he's a brilliant guy. It's not that that technology wasn't around before that, but he understood the value of it and commercialised it. 
And so then Alex, final question, if you think back to your younger self, you know, investing in that first property with your brother, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? My advice to my younger self would be, uh, don't confuse pleasure with happiness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That's deep. I like that. Uh, because sometimes happiness is, is can't, you know, doesn't feel very, you know, it's, it can be quite an unpleasant feeling, but in, with the, but, but when you see people being happy around you as a result of you making the right decisions, that's enormously gratifying. Mm. So never confuse, you know, Pleasure with happiness. Pleasure with happiness. Nice. Well, Alex, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable discussion over the last 50 minutes. Plenty of stocks that we've covered. And I know a lot of our audience will have taken a lot of value from that, given that I'm sure almost all of those stocks will be in uh, many of the portfolios uh, within our community. I'm not sure about Macabre Libre. Oh, sorry. Not sure about Mercado Libre, but uh, yeah, it's it's been great. And we appreciate you coming on and also appreciate your time at the ASX. Uh, and well. thank you so much for having me on the program. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Alec and Bryce, and uh, love to do it again. Thank yeah, you. we'd love that as well. Appreciate you coming on. Excellent. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.